Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 312th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Emily Rasam. Emily is the Senior Financial Planner for Archer Investment Management, a virtual independent REA based in Austin, Texas, that oversees $170 million of assets in our management for nearly 170 families. What's unique about Emily, though, is how, after struggling for years at a position where responsibilities and pressure kept building and kept deterring her from being present in her family life, she realized that she had built enough expertise that she didn't need to settle anymore and made it a priority to find her ideal position that not only appreciated her expertise, but also would help her build a better work-life balance. In this episode, we talk in depth about how, as Emily progressed in her career from working on 401k plans to focusing on financial planning, she faced challenges and eventually burnout while building a successful financial planning offering in a firm that was still primarily focused on 401k plans first and foremost and didn't want to allocate resources away from that core 401k business. How, by what Emily describes as a stroke of luck in the midst of her burnout struggle, she took a chance in applying for a financial advisor position she found at 3 a.m., which led her to her current role that presently surprised her as their work culture and work-life balance priorities perfectly aligned with what she was seeking and so desperately needed. And how exactly Emily determined that the firm would have such a positive work-life balance when it didn't advertise itself that way by asking key questions of the firm owner during her interview process to understand their systems and processes and how invested the firm really was in its financial planning offering. We also talk about how in the very early stages of her career and immediately after finishing an internship for an insurance agency, Emily realized that even though the agency was already creating flyers and literature promoting her as a financial advisor, she was still too young and inexperienced to truly take on the role and decided to find a more service-oriented job where she could gain financial planning knowledge and experience at a comfortable pace. The way that Emily eventually overcame her career-long struggles with imposter syndrome by getting better perspective on the expertise she'd really built in 15 years of managing and educating 401k plan participants. And how Emily ultimately was able to shed the perceived notion she gleaned early in her career that advisors needed to be cold and calculated in selling their services, and realized that by focusing on the human aspects of financial planning, she could be successful and fulfill her own passion and purpose. And be certain to listen to the end, where Emily shares how she admittedly struggled for years with saying no to clients and yes to too many opportunities, and found that by advocating for herself and finding the right position that could support her and help her set limitations for herself, she could finally create a space where she could not only thrive in her career, but at home as a wife and mother as well. Why Emily believes it's important for newer advisors to understand from the beginning of their careers that bringing value to clients does not have to be predicated on doing an overwhelming amount of work and instead can be focused on building more targeted expertise and knowledge that offers true value to their select clientele. And how, even though Emily went through many years of struggling to find the right work-life balance, she feels it was important for her to have had those experiences because without them, she couldn't have gained the knowledge she gained and the appreciation for she is today. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Emily Rasam. Welcome, Emily Rasam, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Yeah, thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you joining us today and and the opportunity to talk a bit about 
work-life balance, like the 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 infamous dynamic of of work-life balance in the in the advisor world. And I I find like the industry is going through some really interesting transitions right now. Probably driven in no small small part from the COVID pandemic, which I think had a lot of people kind of re- reassessing life and priorities and certain decisions that. Uh, you know, there seems to be this newfound focus on trying, really trying to find a different balance between work life and home life. And for some advisors, it's led in the direction of saying, I'm just going to like launch my own firm and just build it the way that I want to build it and do the thing that I want to do. For other advisors, it's about switching firms and finding a new new firm to work at in a different work environment, and at least hopefully a firm that has a better work life balance. And you know, it's it's hard. I think in part because no, almost no firm really says like, yeah, our work life balance is terrible here. I guess there's a few that are like, yeah, we're so focused on growth, you're going to work a lot of hours, but it's going to be awesome. Most firms at least say something the effect of we've got a great work life balance, and then you get in there and have to see whether that's actually really going to be the case or not. And I know you've you've followed a version of that journey in your career over the past couple of years of making a transition and finding a firm that really does have a whole different kind of work life balance and feeling the change that comes with that. And so I just I'm excited to talk about this dynamic of like how you make the decision of when it's time to make a change for better work-life balance and how you actually figure out if the firm you're talking to is going to have the work-life balance that they say they're going to have. Yes. And that is a very scary thing because I think on every single HR section of a website, they say something about work-life balance and they'll talk about that in the interview. And you're right. You know, some it's just a buzzword to put on a website and others you really have to understand, you know, what the work culture looks like and what the dynamics look like. And it takes a lot of conversations to truly unearth what that is. So so share with us a little bit more of your journey. I know that you you made a transition like this recently and and I think we'll talk a little more soon about like how you found the firm that you found and the change that you ultimately made but talk just a little bit about like what work was like before you made a change that led you to this point that you you made you made some changes and and started down this journey yeah yeah absolutely and and I'll take you all the way back Um, So my first entry into this world was I took a financial fellowship, which was an internship at an insurance agency. And what was kind of funny to me about it was I was 20 years old and I was about to turn 21 and they had published a bunch of business cards and flyers and things and labeled me as a financial advisor. And I just came across these materials the other day when I was going through my office. My pictures on there. I am a baby in those pictures. (laughs) I am so young. I didn't know anything. And so I went through this internship and the goal at the end of it was, you know, you'd you'd get licensed and they slap this big title on you and this hat. And all of a sudden you are this financial advisor because you've had a few weeks of training. And one of the flyers that came out said that I did estate planning and tax planning and business succession planning and all these things I didn't know anything about. And so ultimately, I determined- Not not actually that deep on your business succession planning experience as a 20-year-old. Yeah, oh God, no. And and, and, you know, what the job actually was going to be. So if I had finished the internship and stayed on as a quote-unquote financial advisor, 
what they really were going to have me do is, you know, project 100 and sell life insurance to everybody I know. And then, you know, 2% of people make it through that kind of program. And then maybe later in their careers, learn more about financial planning and actually become, you know, more qualified to call themselves financial advisors. But I just found it absolutely ludicrous that there are companies that will take that baby face Emily and call her a financial advisor and tell her to call in all of her family and friends and tell her, tell them that you all of a sudden are this person. And so, so what, what yeah. led you down the road to like, I mean, just like to take that plunge and start, I was gonna say, like start doing that to yourself, but maybe that's too, too strange a way to frame it. Cause I, I'm, I'm sure you were all into it at the time. Like how, how did you land in that direction of saying, Hey, I'm going to try this financial advisor thing as a 20 year old in the first place? Yeah. Well, so thankfully I never took the role at the end. The internship was to learn about it. And at the end you were supposed to then be this financial advisor. And I determined I don't know enough to tell people what to do with their money. And I don't really want to be calling people and selling life insurance. So thankfully, I did, though, fall in love with the industry. And so thankfully, I was able to find a job. Uh, My very next job was as an assistant to two financial advisors. So I landed in more of a financial planning firm. You know, there were about 25 advisors and support staff probably about 50 people total. And so I started out and I worked for a year as an assistant to two financial advisors, learning more of the business from a supporting role. And about a year in, a job opened up that looked a lot more fun. And that was working with a team of advisors that specialized in 401ks. And the role that they had open was to go out and do 401k enrollment meetings. And you know, I saw the person before me in that role. They're out in their car. They're bopping around to different companies and meeting with different people all day long and helping them enroll in their 401k plan. So that was really my next role within this firm was I want to go out and, you know, talk to people face to face. I'm done kind of, I did a year of pushing paperwork around and filing and learning, you know, some of that. And I, I wanted to go out and do these meetings. And so first oh. I started... Just I'm curious more even on the like the assistant job end of things. It's just what what led you there as opposed to I've like I've fallen in love with the financial advisor industry. I want to find another financial advisor job. Yeah. So I think what I what I liked about the financial world, first of all, I was obsessed with time value of money and the idea of just going and helping people grow wealth and that idea appealed to me. And I felt like this is something I could do eventually. And I think I want to eventually be an advisor, but I'm not ready for that role now. And so I want to work at a firm and support other advisors and get to know it in in a, a much more low pressure environment from a more supporting role. And so I, I found the industry and I just needed to have a little bit more confidence and knowledge before I felt like I could step out into an advisor role. Okay. And so, uh, so you did the assistant role for a year. I guess just was there any trigger for what, like, why a year? <laughs> I mean, some people stayed two or three years going through that. Uh, what what led to it's time to make a transition out? Like, how did you know when it's time to go back to the other side again? So it was more that the opportunity opened up in the four hundred one k role of doing the enrollment meetings, and that felt like. You know, it still was not, I am a financial advisor and I'm doing a financial plan for somebody and making these big major decisions. It felt again kind of that little bit lower pressure of, okay, now I'm gonna I'm comfortable with having some face-to-face communication and helping somebody make decisions to enroll in their 401k plan felt like a great place to start. 
Oh, interesting. So almost sort of a waypoint still on that journey of I'm not ready to do like full financial advisor things. I'm like putting that in air quotes. Uh, but I can talk to people about their 401k enrollments. Like that that's a that's a that's an incremental step in the direction without having to be all in yet. Yes. So that felt more my pace and I really fell in love with it. And I feel like the more conversations I would have, because I would have thousands of conversations a year, um, I felt like the more I was sitting in front of people, the more questions they would start to ask me about other areas of their lives. And the more conversations you would have and the more you would start to work with somebody. And I felt like I kind of just treaded slowly into um, then becoming knowledgeable in a lot more areas and, and leaning into other areas as well. And I still felt like I'm not qualified to be this full-fledged advisor. I really felt like I personally, you know, needed to have a CFP. And at this point, I'm, you know, 25, 26 years old. I still feel like I look like a baby. I still feel like I'm not quite qualified to give this advice. And I knew enough to know that it's really hard to give advice in one small area of somebody's life and not have the true understanding of all of the other pieces of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. And so I felt one, getting the CFP would, would give me more knowledge around some of those other areas. But two, you know, I'm, you know, blonde, blue eyed, 25, 26 year old girl coming in. I felt like I needed some credentials in order to show somebody that I'm serious about this career and knowledgeable and, and really give me more of that street cred. Interesting. And so you were you were several years into the 401k enrollment side of the business before even getting to this point? That's right. Okay. So did did the role evolve as you were doing 401k enrollment meetings or was it simply just that for several years ongoing and lots of practice cutting your teeth on that? Yeah. And so it just built naturally the more that I had knowledge in other areas. Um, so it was there were one-on-one -on -one meetings and then there were group education meetings. And so I felt like how I grew was by the more that I learned, the more I was able to educate people on. And so I started then providing uh, educational meetings on Social Security and Medicare and other topics, you know, state planning. And so it felt like a really warm and comfortable environment to grow some knowledge and then educate and share that knowledge. And so part of what I loved about being in that 401k education role was I I felt very good about being an educator and not really being a salesperson. And so I was coming in in a role where the company had hired us to come in and help employees, and we were there to help people and bring value. And so I took that very seriously. And I think that that's what made me feel comfortable and confident really growing eventually into an advisor role was um, being able to test this out and test out knowledge and, and build on that in this type of environment. So I guess it's an interesting distinction, though, because there are some folks that go into the, the 401k and or 403b markets where they, they're out in companies and, and maybe doing a lot of enrollment work, but it's like it's enrollment for plans they they sell, like get the plan, get the business, and then do the enrollment and get and get the, the participants going. But it sounds like the, the context here, like you didn't have to sell and get the plans 
in the first place, like someone else was doing that, you were simply go out and enroll them. Like we got the plan, you go enroll them. I'm guessing someone else was like, and I'm going to go on and get the next sale. Uh, mm-hmm. So you were in a pure, uh, like in enroll them, add value, no need to sell anything because someone else took care of that part. Yeah. And so I didn't need to be part of the sales process, but it did eventually grow into, you know, then the goal was, you know, to help people with transitioning into retirement and rollovers and kind of transitioning people from the 401k space into wealth. And so um, it kind of grew into having some sales element and some goals around growing assets for the firm in general. So I think that if, if that had been the goal from the onset, I don't know if it would have appealed to me, but I think that over time what ended up happening is the more people that I educated and helped, the more I would just naturally you know, yeah. get some of that business. If I helped somebody make some social security and Medicare decisions, then they were asking me if they could roll money over and raising their hand. And so a lot of how I've built clients over a long period of time is really coming from that more educational space. And so feeling like I need to give them this value. And then eventually, you know, it does turn into, you know, growing business, but that's, that's really not been a primary driver in those types of roles. So out of, out of curiosity, like, I guess I'm just wondering, did did it naturally evolve this way for you that you were doing education enrollments and then some people started asking you to help help them more and then started turning into rollover business and, and broader business? Or was this like part of the the career track of the firm in the first place that Emily, we're gonna hire you and you're gonna do the the, the pure educating work for two years and then we're gonna move you into this role where you start doing more wealth work and and like that was the intended progression. Does that make sense? Like I'm trying to understand, like, did, did your career evolve this way or was this their designed career track for developing you this way? Yeah. So you know what's really interesting? I never reflected on this until the last year or so is that whatever role I've ever been given, I'm hired into a particular role and I I grow it and I add to it. And for better or worse, because that really affects work-life balance, you're given one role and then, well, I can do more and 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 I can say yes to everything and take on more projects and learn more, get more designations. And so I, over the six years of being at that firm, I grew this role you know, tremendously. And, and it was, you know, additional uh, roles that I would take on. I was writing investment commentary. I was um, doing the annual fiduciary review meetings at the 401k committee level, in addition to doing education and not just enrollments, but doing all different specialized education in all of these different areas. And so, you know, I, I typically, and, and nobody pushes me to do this. It's just, I feel like I constantly add to my own plate and I've kind of noticed that everywhere I go. And so um, I didn't really realize that until I really started to reflect back on prior roles that I've had. So nobody at the, at the firm really drove that. I set my own goals and, and hurdles and um, added to it and I never took anything away. So this evolution for you, it sounds like is very much just you're one of those people that's just kind of wired towards like, I want to I want to do a little more like just I want to here's another thing I could do. Here's another thing I could do like feels good, positive impact for my career, enjoy doing more stuff and taking on more more opportunities. So this this was just like intrinsically driven for you that you're just kind of wired this way. Yeah, absolutely. And I just wrote a LinkedIn post about this. And the quote that jumped out for me when I was writing about this was, wherever you go, there you are. (laughs) And 
you know, I along the way, and when we talk about my journey here, I've changed companies and, okay, I'm going to start in this new role and this is the role. And then I found myself growing that and adding to it and doing these other things and then getting overwhelmed. And it's, you know, it's by my own design that that has occurred. And so, you know, that's a little bit of the the coaching that I've needed in the Mm -hmm. last year is not taking on more and saying yes to everything. And so, you know, that's, you know, the six years that I was at that first firm, you know, I grew that role to a certain place. And then I went, I wanted to go work for a larger 401k record keeper. So I worked for a record keeper for five years. And the first role that I had with them was very similar to what I was doing for the advisory firm. And that was going out and doing both one-on-one education meetings and group meetings, but the focus was really more advanced planning at that point. So there was somebody on our team that handled more of the enrollments and maybe just an investment change or website help. And then my role was to come in to say, okay, now we have an executive who has some more complex benefits, or we have somebody retiring who needs help making these decisions and walking through transition. And so I was in that role and I, I loved it. But when the first advent of the fiduciary role came through, um, I got a, a little bit of information about how this particular role was going to be eliminated, that there really wasn't going to be a role to, to help people at this level and to look for that rollover business and to grow that. Oh, interesting. Be- because the because the original Department of Labor fiduciary rule had this big scrutiny on four hundred one k rollovers from four hundred one k plans to IRAs and all the additional due diligence to prove that that was an appropriate rollover. So the the company's response was going to be, then we're just going to rescind these roles that try to drive rollovers because we don't want to have to comply with the rule. They were just going to back away. Yeah, a hundred percent. And so. I, I learned this at a retirement party and somebody who was an executive told me information that, you know, was early for me to know. Um, but helpful, probably I, weren't supposed to know, but really helpful. Yeah, yeah. So um, I learned that the option was going to be to go step backwards and go down into just educator role, you know, not helping people retire, no advanced planning topics, you know, kind of taking that step back. And what he said is right now, there's a wholesaler position available and you need to take that job. You know, you absolutely need to take this job. You're going to be without a job or you're going to have to step backwards. And so I actually was a 401k wholesaler for two years and I hated every minute of it. Uh, I loved I missed meeting with the participants, with the people and helping people every single day. Um, you know, bring clarity to their financial confusion. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I was in that role because that was what was available and staying within the company I was in. But ultimately, it just wasn't the right fit. And it was actually the opposite of my value set because a lot of that role was helping financial advisors sell 401k plans that maybe shouldn't be selling 401k plans. Uh-huh. The, the onesie twosie advisors that might have a connection, but they don't know anything about fiduciary responsibility. They're not going to go do education meetings. And so I would go and be their wing woman in a sales presentation. And I would you know, sell this business owner on the idea of this advisor um, you know, being their advisor for the 401k. And then I was out at the end of the sale and it just, it didn't feel good and I didn't like it. And I missed meeting with participants and doing the planning work. Interesting. And so I guess sort of back to that similar vein, like I don't like the business development salesy and 
particularly in that context, like I just want to actually help people, which was yes. which which was what made enrollment meetings so so appealing because that that was a a more pure service role. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I gave it a good shot, but um, my family was going to be relocating down to North Carolina, and I knew that one when I moved to Charlotte, where I am now. I didn't want to wholesale and, you know, leave my husband in a new city and say, you know, good luck during the week. I'm going to be traveling. Um, I And I also just didn't want to stay in that kind of role. That wasn't the end game for me. I wanted to get back in front of people and feeling like I was bringing value, you know, to people in their everyday lives. And so what was, what was taking you down the North Carolina. I mean, for some people, they're moving because of it's because of a job opportunity. But it sounds like your your issue was you're moving anyways, and then trying to figure out what the next career step was going to be because you were moving. So my family, which is my mother, and then I have a twin sister and and her husband and kids. We were all talking about moving somewhere south, and we were in upstate New York, and it's freezing cold, and property taxes are insane, and you know, a lot of people are kind of leaving upstate New York. So it's not really a growth area. We felt like being in a warmer climate with lower taxes and, and more growth and job opportunities felt like a better fit. And so the, warmer, the- warmer client, lower taxes, more growth opportunities. That sounds pretty, sounds pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, and then my mom was uh, shoveling her driveway or sweeping snow off the driveway and fell and broke her wrist. And she said, I'm done with this weather, you know, get me out of here. And, you know, I am family oriented and and being a twin, you know, we're we're very close. And so there wasn't any chance that they were going to move somewhere and we were going to stay in New York. So we knew that we all wanted to move together and like total Mm. crazy people, we all ended up in the same neighborhood. So uh, we all moved within a couple of months of each other and we all live, you know, within a street or two away. With Charlotte, we just felt that there would be better job opportunities. I mean, we waited to actually make the move until you know, I was settled in and had a job lined up. So the timing of it was driven by a job, but we'd made the decision to move before that job was was available and apparent to us. Interesting. So did you know you were leaving the old job or were you already out of work or just moving? And then when you got there, you started looking for new opportunities? Like how did the timing of the move relative to the job change relative to the leaving the old job part work? Yeah. So I originally, I told the company I was working for, I told them that I wanted to relocate and I really gave them an opportunity to help me find a fit. Um, I'm actually so thankful that they didn't because I think that the problem sometimes about being good at something, even if it's not the right job, is you might stay in it. And Mm. I was doing pretty well with wholesaling. I didn't like it. It didn't feel aligned to my value set. It wasn't what I truly enjoyed doing, but I was decent at it and I could have gotten a job down here wholesaling. And I'm glad they didn't find me a spot down here. I might have just taken it um, and moved on. But I did a lot of interviewing and found a firm that I wanted to join. And I found a role that made a lot of sense to me, um, you know, to go back to having these meetings. And it was it was a role where originally I was just supposed to be meeting with um, the 401k plan. But as I mentioned before, I grew this role, you know, about 20 times before I ended up leaving it. Um, so it really evolved over the time that I, I was in that particular company. The role that I accepted and moved down for, you know, was to meet at the committee level for the fiduciary review meetings and meet with with committee members. And about six months in, I saw this big hole and this big opportunity for, you know, y'all have this huge 401k business 
And separately, in another part of the company, you have these advisors, but there's really not uh, a bridge between the two. Mm-hmm. And so um, we had people who are doing education meetings that were strictly education, and they were really gun shy about converting any of those participants over to the wealth side because they felt like um, you know those were just two separate businesses. And I felt this there, there was a huge opportunity, and you know I expressed how in two prior companies. There are ways to deliver education and be an educator that drives people to raise their hand and ask for more help and potentially, you know, become, uh, you know, a client on the wealth side as well. And so, I spent the the four years I was at that company up until this past January. I really um, took on this new role of adding an element to the retirement plan education and bridging over to wealth and, you know, taking on wealth clients myself, you know, through this process of people who've raised their hands. And so um, this was a role that I sort of created and then added to and added to and added to. But um, ultimately, that's when I kind of finally started to um, build full financial plans for folks and do, you know, morph really much more into an advisor role. And so at, at what point did you go back for the additional education? Because I think you, you said it's, at some point you were also still feeling the pressure of, I'm, I'm not sure I'm qualified to be a fully be a financial advisor yet. And then you were looking at going back for your CFP marks. So what, when did that come into the picture? So the CFP was before I went over to the record keeper. So the first firm I was at, I was uh, 25. So I've had that, I think I just hit 11 years of, of having the CFP. So I had the CFP in that 401k education role. And along the way, I picked up some additional credentials. But even as I was talking to people about social security, I felt like I need to learn more. So I went and got a designation for that. And when I was starting to work with 401k plans, I got a designation, uh, two different designations that are geared towards you know that process. So I do feel like education um, is really important in um, kind of developing these different roles. So I'm I'm curious for just you like your learnings and what you implemented in actually getting people to move over from the 401k side to the wealth side of the business because I know a, a number of firms that do have some amount of 401k business do have a wealth offering and have struggled to figure out how to systematically or efficiently uh, get an, get get clients to switch over or move over or cross over when it's when it's appropriate for them to do so. So I I, I guess I, I'm I'm really curious. Just what were you actually doing to create the crossovers and create those opportunities? Like how were you implementing that in practice? Yeah. So a lot of that I think comes from my personal need to be seen as an educator and not a salesperson. And so the more that I was helping people and educating them and doing these specialized group meetings for different groups and and one-on-one meetings and helping people more with the planning process, I felt like I had learned a lot and grew my knowledge in these areas. And I wanted to share that and, and help people and bring value. And so my primary goal in every interaction was not how do I get rollovers? You know, that just happened. And that came from just doing a lot of meetings with a lot of different people. And, you know, eventually people raised their hand. And I I think that's part of the important part about building that business is I think what's really frowned upon is going in and, and directly trying to sell for rollover in that business. And that's why some companies are a little bit 
gun shy about doing that. But I think that if it's if it is truly an education role and you're bringing that value, the people will come and you know they enjoy those conversations with you and they want to have more conversations and have additional help from you. And and the biggest area that I really leaned into was was the social security and Medicare. Because I feel like somebody who is a pre-retiree and about to retire, it feels like they're confusing and um, they really don't know what choices to make and they're getting all of these calls and, and things in the mail about Medicare. And so helping somebody who feels overwhelmed and anxious about retiring in general and teaching them about those two different things and also teaching them about, you know, what does it look like to pull money out of your retirement plan over time? And, you know, some of, of the more emotional decisions that come from retirement and being able to coach people through that, that brought a lot of rollovers and, and support because people felt comfortable with me and wanted to continue to receive help in those areas and, and help through that transition time frame. So it makes sense to me that just look if you pick topics like social security and medicare to to do a lot of additional plan participant education on there's sort of a really natural self-selection bias at this point like who who comes to a a, a conversation about social security and medicare people who are getting ready to transition to social security and medicare and are going to have retirement rollovers like who who doesn't come to those younger folks that aren't going to be doing rollovers anytime soon so just the the nature of the topic kind of pulls in people that would be most likely to have rollovers coming in the near future yeah and so to be able to help people through those those questions and you know as i learned more and grew and evolved the other area that i focused on was helping executives with these complex financial situations understand all of the different pieces. And so I worked with some executives that had stock options and non-qualified plans and ESOPs and um, you know some executive life and disability plans. And so over time, I just learned these different types of accounts and plans. And you know, really, I think of financial planning is is kind of the same thing that appeals to people who like to watch the Marie Kondo and the home edit shows, the home organization kind of shows. And I think of financial planning as, you know, you start with this like messy pantry or you start with, you know, all of these different financial documents and pieces and confusing things. And you, you take everything out and you put them in buckets and you make sense of them and it ends up being this beautiful organized picture. And so I feel like both with people who are about to retire, it felt like this big confusing thing that kind of made people freeze or be paralyzed or not be able to kind of picture what the end result was going to look like and helping people through the anxiety of that. And helping busy executives ended up being another area that I worked on where they had all of these different confusing benefits and and conflicting priorities with money and helping just simplify that and helping them make sense of it. And so you do a lot of these meetings when you work in the 401k world. And so you start to work a little bit more with different types of people and learn a little bit more about other areas. And people will gravitate towards you that want to work with you beyond um, just the 401k plan or benefits program that you're helping them with initially. So how are you, I guess I'm still wondering, just 
how you're creating these conversations and opportunities in practice. I mean, when you talk about leaning into Social Security and and, and Medicare, is this, you know, uh, we're doing webinars for participants on these topics. We're doing in-person seminars on these topics. We're doing one-on-one meetings on these topics. Just what did you actually like ultimately create and how did you actually bring it to plan participants so that they would see it and have the opportunity to participate and engage? So it would start by typically, you know, pitching this to the HR person or whoever is, you know, the decision maker at a company and to say, you know, this is an education program that I want to put together for your folks. And so it would, a lot of it would be age-based. And so I would essentially say, you know, I can do a topic for people who are early career and I can talk about budgeting and debt reduction, you know, mid-career I might talk in a group presentation um, about, you know, just it, it, the investments and um, kind of initial planning conversations. And then the folks who are nearing retirement, we can we can provide some education for them and one-on-one meetings. And so uh, the format for this in most of the cases before COVID was face-to-face. And so I was going out to um, different employers and doing group meetings in person for a lot of this and a little bit of webinar. Um, but then when COVID hit, it was, of course, all virtual. And so doing a lot of this over Zoom. And so it worked with the HR person really um, helping to promote um, the different topics that I was going to be providing and getting people to sign up for the group meeting. And then afterwards, they would typically have a link to sign up for a one-on-one meeting for me if they were in that nearing retirement group. Or if I was doing an executive level education, I would do one-on-one meetings for them as well. And those would typically, before COVID, be in person and then move to, to virtual at that point. So so you would have this like series of sort of seminar slash webinars as COVID changed the delivery mechanism uh, mm-hmm. of, you know, I, I, I've got a session for early career folks on budging. I've got a session for mid-career folks on being more responsible with their investments. I've got a session for those nearing retirement on Social Security and Medicare. The ones in the last group also get an opportunity to, for follow-on one-on-one meetings if they want to go a little bit deeper. So what, what do one-on-one meetings look like with those folks? I mean, is that like a full-on hour planning meeting, a like 15-minute check-in, ask-me-one-question meeting. Yeah. So the scheduled one-on-ones, um, and looking back, I don't even know how I, I maintained this type of schedule, but you know, I would have you know 12 to 15 of those back-to-back-to-back-to-back over a full day, and it'd be 30 minutes at a time. And so we would really just have, you know, I, it would kind of be an ask me anything type of session where somebody might come in and say, here's my pain point. Here's what I have a question on. So in that full day of, of you know, 30 minute meetings, a, a good chunk of them, I could kind of just answer a quick question or help them understand something. And then there'd be a certain number of meetings where it would turn into, you know, we need to have more conversation around this and, and you know, potentially help you with, with more of a comprehensive plan and, and more than just answering the question today. And so that just is directly part of the conversation, like, hey, the question you're asking is a little bit more than what I can cover in this in this meeting. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit here. But if you really want to go deeper on this, like we we need to we need to talk about a, a, a like a, a deeper engagement. And at that point, you're talking about them becoming a planning and wealth client. Yes. So usually it turn into let's have another meeting and explore this more and see if this is, you know, a good mutual fit for us to to 
transition and work together. And, you know, we would have a form for them to sign to say, okay, we're transitioning away from just talking about the 401k plan to now, you know, we're talking about other areas of your life. And so there was a distinction then after somebody signed that form that, you know, we're going to be having more of a conversation, gathering more data and providing more support for you beyond what the original, you know, context was. Okay. And and so these seminars, like nobody's paying for the seminar. You you're doing it as both a, a an employee benefit from the four hundred one k provider because this just helps you show value and retain the business, re- retain the four hundred one k business, and because you know if you have enough of these conversations, some of them inevitably are going to be people who have more wealth and more complex questions, and they end up turning into into wealth clients. Yeah, and so in in the sales process when that 401k plan was sold uh, by the company I used to work for, in that process, they would either sell the plan with education or without. And so they would price in some education, but I was a salaried employee. And so the, the employer would, it would be built into the fee schedule of how they paid for the 401k plan services. And so if included education, then I would come out and, and provide a certain level of education. Um, but then ultimately, uh, there's additional potential revenue from the additional meetings that we would have. Because you may charge for additional meetings or because some some meetings may turn into wealth clients? Yeah, because some meetings would turn into okay. AUM clients. And so this dynamic of the plan itself will be showed with education or without. Like, mm-hmm. I, I guess, this, how does that work in, in practice? Like, is it a different fee schedule for the plan or like an additional separate add-on fee if they want the with education variety? Uh, like, how, how would that work in practice? Yeah. So typically the retirement plan advisor who sold the plan would typically add. So when they were going through the sales process, they would they would typically provide their level of services that did not include education. And that was typically basis point fees or a flat fee against the 401k plan or paid for by the employer as a flat fee directly. So it just depended on, on what made sense for them. And if they were going to include education, typically that was a flat fee paid for by the employer. So they would agree that that's a service that they wanted and they would pay um, separately for that. And, and I guess sort of just from the business end, like the flat fees the employers pay is literally the money the company has to then pay you a salary to go out and do the education meetings. Like just that, that's, that's how the salary gets covered. Yep, that's exactly right. And out of curiosity, do you know how that how that got priced? I mean, is that like just a flat fee for plan or a fee by how many education meetings you do or like a per participant meeting? Yeah, so that was typically uh, per participant. And so it was based on, but but there were other things that, that were factored into that. And so if they had multiple locations um, or needed multiple shifts, you know, typically the, the fee schedule would be higher for that. And so that ranged quite a bit. I mean, I know that there were plans that we worked on where, you know, we might have charged just a few thousand dollars a year, you know, might have been one location right close to our office. Hmm. And there were some plans that we worked on that we charged six figures a year and, you know, it was a very large organization with a lot of different locations. And so I think the number of locations and the total number of participants was the big driver as far as how they built the pricing in for education specifically. And and I guess just for context, like what what size plans or companies are we talking about? I mean, are you mostly working in uh, like businesses with dozens of employees or businesses with hundreds of employees or businesses with thousands of employees? Like how how big was this market? 
Yeah, there was a pretty big range. So there were some companies that I went into that were single location. They might have 50 employees. And there were some organizations that I was a part of that were you know, publicly traded companies. And so um, it really depended on whether or not education was important to that employer and um, you know, if they felt value in that type of service. And so I would say that of all the 401k plans that we worked on, you know, probably about 15% of them were actually open to somebody coming in and they wanted to pay for that kind of service. So it really was based on, you know, is the employer receptive to this and welcoming and, you know, would like us to come on site and provide this service in addition to managing the 401k. Interesting. So relative to the plans, like it, it wasn't a huge participation number of just the plans themselves. If a 15% plans, like one out of every six or so mm-hmm. were actually saying, yes, yes, we're willing to pay you to come in. But once you did, not only did the fees tend to cover the, the education, but wealth business might cross over as well. Yeah, that's right. So did that ever lead to a discussion of, gee, this is generating enough wealth business. Why don't we charge less for the education or just offer the education for free so we can go in and do it because we're seeing wealth opportunities come from it? It didn't because at the firm I was at, both business lines were separate. And so they operated separately. And so although there was you know, the hope or the goal to potentially convert somebody to a wealth client, you know, that wasn't necessarily the main reason that we were offering education. That was kind of a a happy byproduct of it. So they really didn't price in any expectations for it. And I understand that, you know, I, I know a lot of advisors that really work heavily in the 401k space that give away the education hoping that rollover business that comes from yeah. that, you know, will will support it. But the firm I worked for really said, you know, we're providing this education. Um, you know, we're providing all different types of meetings and the goal is to educate your folks. And, you know, really when when I built out the role that I was that I was in was to additionally um, you know, find some hand raisers, find people who found value in, in these conversations and wanted to work with us beyond just the 401k meetings. Interesting. And and I guess ultimately to me part of the takeaway from it is and yes, if you really want to charge for it, like there are businesses who will pay and you can run that economically viable as as a, as an education offering. You I mean, realistically, I'm gonna guess there would have been more that would have said yes if you charge less or free and kind of allowed it to be a cross subsidized model from the wealth side. But uh, you know, you could you could run the education business on its own as a paid business. And there are employers that are willing to pay for it. Not all, but there are employers willing to pay for it. Yeah. And there are, I think some advisors aren't aware of this, but there are some advisors that go in and just do that education piece and they don't necessarily manage the plan. And so an advisor might say, it's it, you know, it's not my target market to, to go in and um, understand all of the fiduciary responsibilities that a committee member might have or to have that committee level meeting. But I do want to get in front of folks. And so, you know, I've known many advisors who, you know, approach these different companies that might not have education and either offer to go in and do those meetings for Mm -hmm. free, even though they're not the plan advisor, um, or offer, you know, a set of education with a a fee structure around it. So, and there's there's opportunity there because you're coming in warm and there are a lot of folks that have a lot of needs within these 401k plans. So the business was already doing education because they literally did it on a paid basis and were going out and doing these meetings. So I guess, help me understand what were they missing that they were already doing education meetings, but they weren't necessarily getting the crossover 
rollover referral opportunities into into the wealth side of the business. But when you came in, you started doing things differently and they did start to get the crossover. So if, if they were already doing education, what were they what were they missing that you changed that like suddenly made this bridge that wasn't bridging before? So I feel like the education that was being offered before was, you know, very general and there weren't the specific topics that are geared towards the pre-retirees or the executives. And so adding that additional education um, option is a value to the plan, but also gets you in front of the types of people who might want additional business. And, and that was turned away before. And so there was a, you know, a big wall up between the retirement plan business, the practice and wealth management. So there were some advisors that had built their own books of business in other ways. And there were people going out and doing these education meetings, but they really weren't, um, trying to find additional business or convert any of that business or work with any of those folks beyond just those education meetings. And so, um, that's one thing that I identified was, you know, you have, you know, millions of dollars actually leaving these 401k plans every single year. And in addition to that, you have a lot of people who have a lot of needs that can then be addressed within, you know, the context of these education meetings. And so uh, basically I proposed that turning the spigot on and providing that additional education to help um, build that business. And, you know, what ended up happening was just immediate, you know, huge amount of, of growth of inflow into wealth. And so very quickly, you know, I'm hired to do this role. I find additional things to do, go out to more and more plans, do more and more meetings with these participants in group meetings and build additional topics. And then now I'm building a wealth book of business and now I've got to support this end to end and, right. and you know, build this client base. I think that anybody who is you know, working in the retirement plan space that isn't offering those specialized meetings would be really surprised to find out you know, how much more conversion can occur when you offer that additional education in those specialized topics. So so you're going down this road and the good news is it's working and the bad news is it's working. Yeah, it worked too well. <laughs> so you've got your 401k duties and your educator duties and you're doing all these seminars and webinars that are going well. So of course, everybody wants you to do more of them, more, more topics, more presentations. And you're converting wealth clients and getting the opportunity to work with some of those wealth clients, which I'm going to presume is probably part of your remuneration at that point is the you know, having wealth clients. But now you have wealth clients on top of making topics, on top of doing presentations, on top of the original 401k educator role that you were hired into. And so now a whole lot of hours of work start adding up. Yeah. And I can't say no. And I get excited by all of these ideas and I loved my work. And so I didn't mind putting this extra time in. But you know, you know that if you say yes to everything and everyone, and you've got this syndrome, which a lot of advisors have, and and I had, you know, in that role was I wanted to help everybody, and I felt like I could help everybody, and and so I said yes to every everyone and everything, and it just became unsustainable. You know, the number of different things I was doing, and the number of of households that I was essentially ended up working with. And so, like, when does that hit a breaking point? So, you know, I, I kind of wonder what would have happened if I, I didn't go through this kind of life change, but I, I got pregnant. And 
at this point, I'm thinking about, you know, I'm going to be going on maternity leave. And so somebody's going to have to help with this. You know, I wasn't part, I wasn't one of many people in a certain role. I'd created this role and then built it into this, you know, unsustainable, busy role. And now I'm going to need to take a maternity leave, but I'm also going to have to come back and not, you know, work till, you know, eight o'clock every single night. And, you know, I'm going to have to step back a little bit. And so um, that is really what drove me to, you know, try to make some changes within that company, but then ultimately make the decision to leave. So, so I guess just talk to me more about like what, what types of changes were you trying to make? I mean, it's like, what do you, do in that moment when, okay, I've created the role and it's going well, but it's really busy. It's kind of unsustainable. I'm now pregnant. So like maternity leaves coming. So yeah. like, what do you, what do you, what did you do in the moment to try to navigate this? Yeah. So I started by, you know, originally I started by asking for some support. And so, you know, as I was building all of these different roles, I needed some kind of, you know, administrative support in, in working with this. And I'd asked for it and I told you this was working well. And so we were bringing a lot of business on and I, I knew the revenue was there to support it, but it just wasn't a priority for the company I was working with. And so they, they didn't provide a person to come on and support me. And this, this can kept getting kicked down the road of, yeah, we'll be able to hire somebody at some point to be able to help you. You know, we need to hit, you know, get to a certain amount of revenue or get to a place in our business where we can bring somebody on. But it was, it was very clear that this wasn't going to happen be- before maternity leave. So I found a colleague who was within the wealth department and I basically said, okay, I'm going to train you up over these five months before my maternity leave to be able to at least just help answer questions and help the existing clients while I'm out. And so I you know, shifted some of my pay to this person and worked on training him and, and, and building him into a role to be able to help support that maternity leave. But I really had to, this, I had to find that solution on my own and you cover that, that solution. And like you had to pay for that. So like you're an employee for the firm, but you had to pay for someone to cover you into the role. Yeah. And you know, I don't, I, I honestly don't know what the firm would have done otherwise. And they may have come up with a solution, but I I didn't see one appearing. And so this this felt natural to me that if I'm going to shift some of my workload during maternity leave and afterwards, that I felt like I needed to help properly compensate okay. this person. Okay. okay. So I felt like I was going to come back from maternity leave and have less on my plate. And really, you know, this person was going to be able to help kind of support me moving forward. And so I pitched this whole idea to the firm and said, okay. I've identified somebody who has bandwidth and who I feel like I have time to train this person up where they can at least cover the types of questions and inquiries that will come in during maternity leave. But then afterwards, we'll be able to maybe take some things off my plate so that when I'm back, I don't need to work, you know, an extreme amount. Okay. And so how did that, how did that pitch go? So, you know, they, they've said yes. So they agreed to that. Um, and we did the training and I went on maternity leave and, and ultimately, you know, because I'd built up this role with working with so many households and so many plans and so many different things, it it honestly overwhelmed him. And so the joke that I had going into maternity leave was, please don't call me at the hospital, but when I'm home, I can, I can help. So I'll be on maternity leave. So I won't be available all the time, but 
you know, this is this is an overwhelming role that I've created and, you know, I can kind of log in and help or answer questions while I'm on leave. And it ended up being a lot more and, you know, on a daily basis of, of me needing to kind of jump back in and which is not ideal. And, you know, when I came back, there was just this backlog of work from when I was out. There were things that didn't get done and, and really couldn't get done while I was on leave. You know, it's really not necessarily his fault, but there was no on-ramp, you know, so I took a much shorter leave than most people would. And I came back to this overwhelming amount of work. And How, how um, short was your leave at the end of the day? Like how, how long was it until you had to come back? I took eight weeks. Okay. And I, it felt, I felt apologetic about it. It felt like, you know, I shouldn't take this time. And I think that's just the hustle culture of, you know, our world is that you, you want to be available to everyone all the time. And so I, you know, that's why I, I did help during maternity leave. And I, right. I felt like only I could do that. And so I came back and I was just drowning because I've got a baby at home, you know, I'm not sleeping great, you know, it's still postpartum period. I've got all this work to do. And, you know, clients that knew I was out, like, okay, you're back, like, let's meet. And so, you know, for months, I was just drowning. Um, And I asked for support, I asked for help, I asked, when is somebody going to come on to help me? And it just wasn't coming. And so I, I got to this point where I was starting to get emails from clients saying, hey, I emailed you last week and I haven't heard back from you. And that's not me. I am I am responsive. I'm always there. I'm logged on at midnight if I need to be. And, you know, so to me, before going on maternity leave, I feel like, you know, I, I never got behind like that. I always was responsive and that was one of my core values. And I just, I got behind and I got overwhelmed and just had a mental breakdown. You know, I, I couldn't sustain it. And so what happened next? I I really thought about that role and I said, how do I make this work? You know, how do I, you know, take things off of my plate? You know, can I take can I take the role that I'm in right now and make it sustainable? And so I spent, you know, a couple of months trying to potentially offload work, you know, beg again for administrative support, um, all of those types of things. And it it just became clear to me that it just wasn't going to work. And I, I made this decision that, you know, I've I'm I'm in this role right now that feels like I can't I can't be this overwhelmed another minute. You know, I need to make my family my priority. I need to make my mental health my priority. And I need to figure out, you know, how to find work-life balance. And it didn't feel like I was going to be able to do that there. And and you know, the other thing is within the firm that I was working for, you know, only four percent of the total revenue of the firm was wealth management business. And so it wasn't, you know, a huge part of the firm. And I think that's part of why I didn't necessarily have the resources that I might have needed is, you know, this was an employee benefits firm that did retirement plans and we were this, you know, cute little um, department. I, I was going to ask that just, just at the end of the day, like you were building a cool wealth thing in a firm that was still 96% uh, core 401k business doing retirement plans. And so just when you're that far outside of the core of what they do, it just gets really hard to get resources in a, in a larger firm. They just tend to reinvest into the core. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so, you know, I started thinking about, you know, if I worked for a firm that was really primarily focused on financial planning, I would have, you know, resources, support, technology, and, you know, I'd really be able to focus on 
the planning. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, the mechanism of going out and, and talking to people in a 401k plan, what I loved about that was was sitting down with folks and having those conversations and helping them through you know, the financial plan. And so you know, I did that through, you know, by, by working with 401k participants, but ultimately I wanted to continue that work, but in a smaller scale. Well, I'm, I'm struck in that journey that if we go back to, I guess, the, the earlier end of that 10 plus years prior, you were in the 401k business and doing enrollment meetings, as I say, doing in air quotes, like just enrollment meetings, because you had said originally you didn't feel qualified to be a more holistic financial advisor. That was the whole start of taking the administrative job out of the gate. And so, you know, early on, you were reluctant to be in the seat of doing this full financial advisor job, but 10 plus years later of having built into enrollment and built into education and started building wealth and actually doing a wealth role. Now you were suddenly at the other end of the spectrum of, oh, wait, this is actually the like the only thing I want to do now. I want to do the financial planning and wealth work, maybe I'm going to let go of the 401k side of the business I've been doing for my entire career up to this point. Yeah, it took me a long time to feel confident in calling myself an advisor. And it was really, you know, in that last four years that I was at that prior company, I kind of woke up one day and said, you know what, I'm really freaking knowledgeable. And I've built out this knowledge in all of these different areas. And I'm doing the work, you know, I'm doing planning. And I think it, it took me a long time to not see myself as that, you know, 20 year old, I don't know anything, baby face Emily, you know, where, you know, I'm not qualified to do this. And and that changed for me, you know, within the last five years of saying, you know what, I actually, I, I'm actually really good at this. And I know what I'm doing. And I finally felt comfortable. And I think that took me a lot longer than it takes other people. Um, and how really, long was it? I mean, like, just how how long are you into your career at this point? I'm well. So now I'm 15 years into my career. It took me a long time to really feel like I knew enough to, you know, really take that full responsibility on of of having having clients. So, I mean, I guess this transition was a a few years ago relative to now, but that still means like you were 10 or 12 years in before getting to the point you where you really felt like I can I can call myself a financial advisor and not have that like catch in my throat when I try to say it to someone with a straight face. Yeah, and I think that you know, I I felt like I I probably had that knowledge many years before that, but it just took me a while to get out of that imposter syndrome and and feel like I truly had that technical knowledge and and I think that really when I I felt that transformation for me was I felt like at least the first ten years it felt like there was all this technical knowledge that was just outside of what I knew. And so I felt like I, I knew a lot, but I needed to learn more and learn more and learn more. And then all of a sudden, what I realized was I had this technical knowledge, and now I can kind of zoom out and really help people put all those pieces together and have more of those human conversations and those behavioral transformative types of conversations. And so mm. that's, I think, what really made me feel like I all of a sudden got to a point where I felt like my technical knowledge was in a place where now I feel like I'm a planner and spending time on planning. And, you know, it's table stakes for me to review a tax return or, or you know, look at some different pieces of the puzzle. And now I can, I can really kind of put this all together. 
So was there any like particular, I don't know, like, like transformative moment, like, you know, the, the moment, the experience, the client meeting or something of like, I had this meeting and just suddenly realized like I was there, it was time. Was there a, was there a moment or did it just really slowly creep up on you? Yeah. So I think that when I really started to feel like the real deal <laughs> was I, I started to take on clients that were, you know, much larger clients and, um, you know, taking on a a CFO or a CEO or some of the executives that I started to work with said, wow, they actually, they want to work with me and trust me and value my advice. And so I kind of needed that seal of approval. You know, when I stopped focusing so much on building technical knowledge was when a lot of my conversations stopped being about the technical pieces of the financial plan and really started to be about, you know, how to help people move forward with their goals. And so, you know, helping somebody who planned for years and years and years to go to Italy feel confident to book the plane tickets and go. And so I started to see success in mm. these relationships in helping people move forward and realizing that I have an impact in making somebody feel comfortable and confident, you know, making some major life decisions or hitting a goal or buying that dream car and participating in that. And I think that's what really helped me feel like a real planner. You know, it, 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 it's funny to me hearing the, the story and the, the journey. I mean, it, it, it reminds me of just a similar dynamic for what I went through. Uh, Cause I was similar. Like I started, I started right out of college and I remember throughout the early days of my career, like I never wanted to n- anyone to know what year I had graduated. Cause I was like, they're going <laughs> to do the math and figure out like, yeah how how young i am and so like i'd i'd graduated in 2000 and i like i didn't want to tell anybody when i when i'd graduated and particularly then cuz there was a like if it was the early 2000s in your graduation you started with a 2 and not a 199 like that meant you mm-hmm. were really young uh and I'd had a conversation with someone a year ago who had asked me when I graduated and it and it caught in my throat saying that I graduated in 2000. I was like, wow, that was 21 years ago. And I still have trouble saying when I graduated because I don't want people to know how young I am. Not actually that young anymore. But like it's still that mental self-image stays with you a really long time. <laughs> Yeah, because you remember when you didn't know anything mm-hmm. and when, when you were young, you know, that doesn't leave you. And so sometimes it takes, you know, pressing pause and saying, you know what, I actually, I know a lot more than I think I know. And I'm doing a lot more high level work that maybe I'm, I, I think I can. And so I think it was just the, the 401k environment created this really warm environment for me to do this without the pressure of, you know, joining a firm and, and having to, you know, cold call clients and, and sell myself and, you know, sell these services that I'm not qualified to do and, you know, do all of these things. And so this just felt like a very warm, slow treading into eventually ending up, you know, having a, a book of business and having clients that I work with one-on-one. I guess so you're so you're getting to this point of it's not working. I'm burning out hard. The firm just isn't going to give me the resources that I'm asking for because at the end of the day, unfor- unfortunately, like I'm being really successful in something that's not actually their core business, so it's just hard to get resources. And maybe now I really actually want to be primarily focused in financial planning with a firm that's actually financial planning first because then they'll put the resources towards financial planning. Ah. Uh, 
So like this, this transition now is building up in your head. So like what happens next? I mean, is there a, is there a particular trigger when it just became, this is the moment I give up on the current firm. It's time to find something new. Yeah. So I, I built up over the years, just different networks of financial advisors that I knew in different areas and different companies. And so I started just having a lot of conversations with people and, you know, just trying to understand, you know, different roles that people had and different firms that they worked for. I even thought for half a minute about, you know, starting my own small RIA um, and what that might look like. And so I I was having lots of conversations and I was sure that somebody that a connection that I had or somebody that I would know would lead into, you know, a role, a, a firm that I wanted to potentially join. And what I was looking for was... I, I can't be so busy and overwhelmed. I need to join somewhere that has support. And also, I need to walk in with boundaries immediately and have a much more limited role where, you know, I'm not juggling 50 balls and wearing 30 hats and doing all these different things. And so I had a lot of conversations with different people just to understand where they were, how they got there, you know, what advice they would have for somebody in my position. And I was sure that one of those would lead into a, a job. But what ultimately happened was it was three in the morning on a Thursday night and I'm rocking my son back to sleep and I'm just kind of squinting at my phone and I'm like, I'm going to go on Indeed and just see what's out there. And so up until this things, point- Things it, we do at three o'clock in the morning because the little one won't go down. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I, I, you know, surely I'm going to just, you know, build on these great connections I pride myself on having. But I'm on Indeed. It's three o'clock in the morning. I'm just had it with with where I was and said, I'm going to just see what's out there. And so I see a posting for a senior financial planner role at an RAA. And, you know, I I give it about two seconds thought and I just said, I'm going to upload whatever random resume I have sitting on this phone. You know, I don't even know if I'm attaching the right document. You know, I don't even have my glasses on. We're just we're just throwing something into the ether here. And, you know, eight o'clock the next morning, I got an email saying, we're very interested in talking to you. And so I, so that was a Friday morning. So the next Tuesday, I have a conversation um, with what ultimately ends up being the firm that I go to. And one of the very first things that he says to me is mental health is really important to us. And, you know, just really talk to me about how the firm is run. You know, everybody that's there, you know, there's a limited number of clients that they take on and they space meetings out so that people have, you know, space and time throughout their day. And, you know, he had said that he wants people to operate at, you know, 80% capacity max because if we get busy, then you might get to 100%. But, you know, it wasn't this, we're expecting 150% out of you and, you know, to grow this into 50 other different roles. It was really, you know, much more, it sounded a lot more like a place that I could actually find that work-life balance. Well, I think it's interesting that, as we mentioned at the very beginning, a lot of firms say work-life balance. I mean, everybody sort of says it these days. I feel like it's the it's the hot thing to uh, to talk about. But then the question becomes, does the firm like really, really do it and really, really live it? And I'm struck in the context of just some of what you you described there. That's one thing when a firm says work-life balance is really important to us. It's another when they start talking about things like, no, we really limit how many clients anyone is assigned and takes on. 
so that they continue that balance. Or we space out meetings and we'll only do so many meetings in a day because we actually don't want you to get too loaded up. Like that's a that's an interesting distinction to me because there are firms that say it, but they don't necessarily get down to that level of here's what we actually do to make that happen. Whereas this firm was saying it out of the gate. Yeah. And you know, I was just hyper-focused on this because I was really vetting for, you know, are we just saying things that sound good or, you know, is this really how you practice? And so, you know, so I asked- So what else were you listening for or asking? Like, how do you, how do you, how were you figuring out whether it was, it was really real or not? Yeah. So I, I asked a lot of questions about, you know, how and when and why they took clients on, you know, what types of clients they said no to. Because what I wanted to hear is that they didn't say yes to everybody and you, you're not everything to everyone. Okay. And um, so I was, I was listening for that. I asked a lot about um, scheduling and processes, but I also asked a lot about support because I knew that, you know, a place that valued support and bringing support staff on um, makes a huge difference that, you know, if you're, once you're done with your meetings for the day, if you have to sit down and do three hours of paperwork, it's impossible to create work-life balance when you don't have support mm. in that. And so I wanted to know, um, you know, how and when they hired, um, what the next hires would look like and when that would occur. So I'm, I'm in my head picturing, you know, do I need to be, you know, absolutely overwhelmed and at my total breaking point before somebody comes on? Or, you know, is this something that you do proactively hire? And so I was listening for that to try to understand, you know, how that is tracked and monitored and, and when the hiring decisions were made. Interesting. And so just you're outright asking, the, I mean, those questions like, you know, how do you decide when the next hire is going to come? What what are the next hires going to be? Like, tell me about your hiring process, that those were actual questions you're asking them in the interview process for the job you're trying for. Yeah. And I was very upfront about, you know, I, you know, I, I have a little one at home. I have a goal of having another child at some point. You know, I want to know, you know, how how do you build a family life into all of this? And so, you know, learning that, you know, other folks there have children as well. And, you know, it wasn't a butts and seats role. It was, you know, you get your work done and we don't give you an overwhelming amount of work to do and or or an overwhelming number of clients to take on you know you do if you do your job well you know it doesn't matter if it's at 8 p.m. or 8 a.m. or in the middle of the day you know it wasn't a um, you know clock in clock out 9 to 5 kind of role and so how are they answering the like hiring questions you were asking in in ways that were satisfactory to you basically what was shared with me was you know, we get to a point where, you know, we can see that we're going to need additional support and we start hiring for that right away. And so um, they they shared with me language that felt like, you know, we build the track before the train comes along. Um, you know, we're not trying to throw track down, you know, as we're running. Mm-hmm. Um and the other thing that I was, you know, listening for is, you know, what kind of technology support is there and what type of systems are there, um, you know, to help create efficiencies in the, in the work as, as well. So, you know, do I have administrative support and are there processes and systems and technologies that are going to support me as well? And I mean, like, how do they, how did they answer that? Because I don't hear a lot of firms say, like, well, let me tell you about our support processes. <laughs> 
Yeah. So I, I had them take me through the client experience, um, you know, what the workflows looked like, what the technology looked like. So I looked at sample financial plan and some of the different technologies that were there. Um, I wanted to understand, you know, who did what in each part of the processes. So they were very open and transparent with me and shared a lot with me about what that looked like. And so and I wanted so to make you're, you're looking for a firm like literally that has well-defined processes and workflows and division of work because you just actually ask them like show me a sample plan how it's built and who does each part of the process so you can look for do they have workflows and system and process where things get handed off appropriately. Yeah, exactly. So when I saw what the workflow steps were and who gets assigned what and what part was my role um, you know, would be my role, all of those different types of things, I really wanted to actually see what the day-to-day work would look like. And so, you know, we, he, they were able to demo that for me and show me, you know, end-to-end, you know, what it looks like for a client working with us and what behind the scenes happens at the firm, um, you know, to support that process. So, so I, I guess I'm wondering, like, back to the original job description you saw on Indeed at three o'clock in the morning, like, were they advertising this in the job position? Like, we're a great firm if you prioritize work-life balance and you reached out or like, was it just any old senior financial planner role? It just turned out to be a firm that really happens to value work-life balance. You know, I think there was a little bit of language in there. I don't know that it was super apparent to me in that. I think I just got lucky in, um, that once I had that initial conversation, it was very clear to me in how I clicked with the other advisor and how that conversation went and the and the emphasis on this work-life balance and building out this practice. That became very clear to me. I think I was just, at that point, I was just open to having a conversation and it just happened to be what popped up for me. So um, it, it was really more in having those conversations after the fact that you know I realized that I struck gold. And so I guess just tell us overall about the firm then. I mean, is this a, a huge firm, a mid-sized firm, a small firm? Like tell us about the, the business itself that you you ended up finding your way to. So the firm I found, it's small RIA based in Austin, Texas. So that is one huge advantage of you know being in this post well COVID environment is being able to not just look within Charlotte, North Carolina, but to look at mm. you know different roles all over the country, and so it really expanded the types and, and numbers of firms right. that could potentially work. And so, um, so is it you know founder advisor who you know started his own practice 15 years ago and really ran it by himself for many years, and then hired a practice manager and a client service representative and two para planners, and then ultimately was looking for a senior planner. And what also went really well in those conversations was that I had shared how I'd worked in these these larger institutions and where it really, there wasn't ever going to be an opportunity long-term for any kind of partnership or ownership. And so, you know, as it kind of turns out, you know, this is a place where, you know, I can grow into that kind of role. And that's, we're working on that right now is, is some of that succession and continuity planning, which will allow me to ha- have that kind of role in the future. And and so what are the what's the size of the firm overall at this point of I don't know if you measure by revenue or clients or AUM? Yeah. So we have about 170 million assets under management. Um, and it's about 170 families that we work with. 
Okay. So new clients that we work with typically are coming in with, you know, million dollars or more investable assets. Um, but there are some legacy clients that are, are a little bit smaller right. that we've worked with. Interesting. And so it's it's um, essentially a six-person team then, like founder, practice manager, CSA, two paraplanners, and you? Yep. Okay. And so what has it looked like then over the past year since making the transition? Yeah. So after making the transition, you know, all the right things were said in that conversation. You still have this, you know, lingering fear of, you know. <laughs> I hope it's this... really real when I get there. Oh, Yeah. Um, and you know, the other thing is I think that in my head too, when I had that, you know, three o'clock in the morning, I need to make a change kind of, um, thought process. I thought I'm going to have to take a big step back in my career to find work-life balance. And, you know, what ended up with this role is, you know, I am in a a lead advisor planner role and I didn't know that I was going to be able to find that with work-life balance. And so, you know, that worked out better than, than expected, but you know, what ended up happening in practice is that the advisor that I work with is really coaching me into work-life balance. Because again, wherever you go, there you are. Right. I come into this firm and I start to find all of these extra things that I could maybe do <laughs> because uh-huh. I can't help myself. Right. So, you know, I feel like I have to be this, you know, I don't know, even though I'd, I'd already made the decision that I needed to step back, I could, kind of just couldn't help myself. And so, you know, I, I started to want to volunteer, um, you know, to take on more. And what he's really done is said, okay, you don't have any goals other than to find work-life balance. We are not going to burn you out. Our goal is to not burn you out and is to keep you happy and to continue to bring value to you in your career. And so, you know, part of what what's ended up happening over the last 11 months that I've been there is one, you know, we'll be on a meeting together and he'll say, pull up your calendar and make a mental health day for yourself. And, you know, just find this time to decompress. And so he'll put on my calendar, you know, out Emily's out of the office. She is, you know, on a rocket ship on the way to Mars with Elon Musk, incommunicado, don't reach out to her. Um, and so he that's part of the coaching is putting these these times on my calendar, not setting goals, but also we'll be in, we have a weekly planner meeting where he and I and the two pair planners get together and you know, we'll come up with an idea and very quickly I'm, you know, raising my hand, I'll take this on, I'll build this new workflow, I'll research this new technology, I'll, you know, build this into our practice. And he will say, No, I know you've got a lot on your plate. We're gonna have one of the pair planners do this. And so a, a lot of what you know, he's coached me to in the last year is, you know, slowing down what I'm saying yes to, learning how to say no to clients. So taking on people who aren't the right fit. I've never known how to do that before. I've just said yes to everybody. So So, how how do you do that? Because I think a lot of us need some help with that. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I would take in any stray puppy before. I mean, they needed my help and I can help them. And, you know, I would just say yes to everything. And so, you know, part of that is, you know, just helping me understand, you know, there's in what he will always say is there are only so many seats on the bus. And so, you know, we're going to limit you to the number of people you can work with. And you really need to, you know, build your client base with clients that are the right, easy to work with, engaged in the planning process at an asset level that, um, you know, supports what we're doing. And he said, you bring a massive amount of value and you do a lot of work and you really need to bring on the types of clients that the, the revenue supports the amount of work that you're doing. And so, 
um, you know, really kind of staying a little bit more firm with with some of the minimums and um, having the right type of client um, coming on board. And so I've, I've needed some coaching in that. And so did you have to compromise on salary or compensation or something else around this to find this more work-life balanced role? I mean, were there are there other trade-offs that have gone with this decision? I really expected to have that be a result and I expected to, you know, step back in compensation and, and all of that. But you know what? What just ended up happening, and I just feel so lucky and so happy to to be where I am. You know, my my compensation has remained relatively the same as what I was making, with a lot of opportunity kind of built in. So you know, I have been able to decrease my work significantly, have a lot more support, and you know, continue to grow my career and grow my compensation. And I, I really didn't expect that. And I think that had I known that this was possible, I think I might have made some much bigger changes a lot earlier. But I think being 15 years into my career and having this knowledge base, I think that you know there's a shift in the value that I bring isn't necessarily doing more and pushing more paperwork around and, and taking on more roles. It's really having this knowledge and value that I can bring to clients and, and kind of understanding that mm. you know there's, there's appropriate compensation for that. So what surprised you the most in this journey of building your career in the in the advisory business? I think that, you know, what surprised me the most is kind of being able to get to this point of, you know, truly having this work-life balance of, you know, having this time during the week to spend with my son and, you know, bringing on these, um, you know, high net worth clients and, and having them value my time. And, and being at a firm that values my time, I think I, I didn't necessarily expect that. I just thought that I was working in an industry that was goal-driven and hustle culture, and you have to work really, really hard in order to you know build a career in this space. And I think that it really surprised me that you can slow down, you know, and and limit the number of clients you're bringing on and niche up in this business and, you know, have that work-life balance and have more of that satisfaction. I think that was really surprising to me that those came together. There's a striking transition to me and and you you just described it in part of the journey for you as well that there's sort of this part of the job really early on where I mean frankly, well really early on like your value is pushing paperwork. I mean, you you literally did that for for a year at the <laughs> beginning, and then like there is a part where your value is just spending more time doing stuff. So you know, you, you hit the road on on enrollment meetings, and then there is a point where your value is doing more, and so you you know you did more roles and took on more stuff and 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 lived that journey for a while. But that along the way, you're also building this knowledge base, an experience base of how to give advice and how to serve clients. And that at at, at some point, there's enough of a knowledge base there that that you can really primarily get paid for that as the as the main work that you're doing. And getting paid for knowledge work is really different than getting paid for service work and time because you can get yeah. paid for a lot of knowledge without needing to spend an inordinate amount of hours because you're getting paid for the last 15 years of experience you built to get to this point. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, a transition that also happened at the same time was somebody had told me early on in my career that the first impression that you can give somebody is that you are either cold and competent or you're warm and dumb. And so I feel like in the first part of my career, it was 
I need to get this technical knowledge and I need to be, you know, really technically strong in a lot of different areas and get these designations and get my CFP. And I feel like another transition that kind of happened over the last couple of years is, you know, understanding that my value is my knowledge, but also I can have that, you know, running in the background, that's the foundation. But really, this role is about, you know, transitioning into, you know, being that, you know, warm and and friendly person and focusing more on, you know, the human element of this work. And so I think that's something that changed for me, too, as I gained confidence that I knew I had this technical knowledge um, kind of just running. It became a lot more effortless. And then all of a sudden, it felt like I felt like a real planner and I felt like I was bringing a lot more value when I started to lean more into the people aspect of it. So what was the low point for you on this journey? I think the low point was, you know, just before I made this transition, feeling like, you know, I'm failing at home, you know, I'm not, I'm not present enough with my son. And I felt like I was failing at work because I got that email that I didn't get back to somebody. And, you know, feeling like I'm failing at this because I can't make this work and I don't have enough hours in the day to make this work. And making a change in this career is really scary because you know, it's, it's, you can't necessarily just transport, you know, your, your clients and, you know, going somewhere new, often it means starting fresh or hoping that people find you, um, you know, in that transition. And so the scary thing was, you know, feeling like, you know, I'm not doing well, any of this, I need to take this big step back and I'm probably going to hurt my compensation and, um, you know, do all these things. So although I was making a lot of the right decisions for my family, I, I was scary to me that it felt like I was, you know, cratering my career at the same time, or I I thought that that was going to end up being the result of it. So is there anything you wish you'd done differently in this journey, looking back in retrospect? You know, ultimately, I feel like I'm so happy with where I am now. And I know that that wouldn't have occurred if I didn't go through the prior firms and roles that I went through. Hmm. And you know, I think that I might have gone back and told myself at earlier ages, you know, you you are legitimate. You do know a lot. You can do this. You know, you know, you are, you know, an advisor and a planner and, and, you know, people will respect you and value your opinion and value your knowledge. I wish that I'd known that earlier and been more confident at different points. But at the end of the day, I'm, I'm happy that that's where I am now. And I'm, I'm very happy that I'm building my career now in the firm that I am at that does value the mental health and the work-life balance. And, you know, I will be having another maternity leave coming up in May. Uh, congratulations. And, yeah, thank you. So, and I knew that at the prior firm, I said, I can't, I can't do this again. I can't go through another maternity leave here. It will just break me completely as a human. And so I, it just feels a lot different knowing that, you know, I will have that type of support here. And so I think that, you know, feeling confident in my knowledge base, finding the right type of firm and finding the right type of environment for me has just led to so much more happiness. And, you know, the firm said, you know, we have failed you if we can't cover you and if you can't take a maternity leave without us contacting you. You know, it's our job to make sure that your clients are taken care of and your work is done and that you're coming back and there's an on-ramp for you to slowly wade back into work. And, you know, it just, it feels so much more different and I'm excited about, you know, this pregnancy and this maternity leave and, and how I'm building my career here. 
so just practically speaking though in 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 a small firm environment where you are like how are they planning to handle the client load and the rest while while you're out yeah so there's the other advisor senior planner and two pair planners and the the client service representative so between them you know answering some of those proactive or, you know, reactive questions, things that that clients might need during that time. Um, But because I don't have the volume of work and the volume of clients, it it also just makes it easier to step into. There's not Mm. as much to have to try to cover. Whereas at the other firm, my role was so big, it really Mm. made it impossible for the person who was trying to help me um, try to cover that. And so, you know, right now I'm, I'm, I'm not so busy and overwhelmed that, you know, me taking a step back for a period of time to focus on my family, you know, there's bandwidth for them to help me because they're not operating at, you know, 150% capacity, their personal capacity. Um, and so there's, there's room for that support. And also, you know, we, we have a nice role where we work with really good, clients and, um, you know, that are understanding. And I won't feel apologetic telling them that I'm going on maternity leave. They'll be excited for me and and we'll say, okay, I'll have my meeting with you before or after I'm back. And I just feel like it's being able to communicate that, um, you know, to clients also feels different here. So what advice would you give to younger, newer advisors looking to become a financial planner and coming into the industry today? I think that for a newer advisor coming in, I would say that, you know, finding the right environment to grow doesn't necessarily need to be, you know, a a busy hustle culture kind of place. And also, you know, finding where you can bring value without overwhelming yourself and, and, and trying to do everything for everyone. And so I think that when advisors are trying to grow their practice, they want to say yes to everything and everyone. And I would say that, you know, that becomes overwhelming really quickly. And so, you know, focusing on, you know, the the right clients and who you can help and taking on, you know, the type of role that is sustainable, I think is is ultimately what's going to work. And then just having confidence in yourself in that, you know, if you've been, um, you know, doing the work to build that technical knowledge and um, just feeling comfortable and confident in your knowledge being that value and not the amount of work that you're putting in. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And one of the themes that always comes up is just the literally the word success means very different things to different people. And so you've had this wonderful career arc of success in building the business and building through different roles and getting to a, a much better role in place for for where you are now in your career of you know similar dollars, more knowledge, work, much better work-life balance. So career is going well. How do you define success for yourself at this point? So I think success to me now is, you know, liking what I do, liking who I work with, liking my clients and feeling good about, you know, who I am in my family and being present for that, as well as who I am for my clients and being present. And so having, you know, the, the type of workload that makes that sustainable, um, you know, I, I think has made, made a big difference. But to me, that, that success is really finding that balance and, you know, focusing on, on my mental health and focusing on slowing down um, in order to achieve that. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much, Emily, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? 
check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.